Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com, and we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to linode.com changelog. This episode is brought to you by Bugsnag. Bugsnag is mission control for software quality. And on this segment, I'm talking with James Smith, co-founder and CEO of Bugsnag, about the core problem they're solving for software teams and why you should head to bugsnag.com changelog to test it out with your team. Let's start with, um, you mentioned you and Simon. So you, you guys obviously at one point didn't have this company, right? So as founders, as engineers, you got to a problem. What was that problem? Why does Bugsnag exist? Uh, Simon and I, my co-founder, I met in college. We went off to build software for other companies. I ended up in a startup. He ended up in enterprise software. And we had the same problem in both of these companies. When things break, it's really hard to figure out how badly they're broken, who's impacted, and what to fix first. So we both had this problem ourselves. So we decided, hey, why is no one doing a good job of fixing this problem right now? So very much Bugsnag was born out of uh, scratching our own itch, as they say. One thing that we find all the time is that there's this tension in software teams or in product companies where you want to deliver new features to your customers or you want to build cool new stuff. But at the same time, you've got to fix bugs because no matter how good a coder you are, you're going to introduce bugs. But there's no clear definition of where to set that slider. Should I... Uh, be fixing bugs now or should I be releasing features? And so this tension exists, I think, in all product teams, all software teams. If you don't have a tool like Bugsnag, it's very difficult for you to figure out where to spend time. And so that's the idea here is we're trying to help teams understand whether they should be building or fixing because there's a bit of a delicate balance between both. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So if your team is unsure of how to spend their time building or fixing, Give Bugsnag a try. It's free to get started with a 45-day extended trial exclusive to our listeners at thebugsnag.com slash changelog. You're listening to the Changelog, a podcast featuring the hackers, leaders, and innovators of open source. I'm Adam Stachowiak, editor-in-chief of Changelog. On today's show, we're talking with Ed Kudikos about setting out idea more, an artificial intelligence open data project for social control of government spending and public administration. We talk about how this project is capable of analyzing claims for reimbursement from Congress people to determine if they're illegal or not, how it monitors the spending of governments, the technology behind it, and how other governments might be able to follow this model. So Ed, you're gonna have to help us out because uh, we first learned about Serenata de Amor uh, in our ping repo from Fabio Rem. Uh, yeah. Thank you, Fabio, for making us aware of this project. I have to admit, I probably would have never found it on my own, and so I'm grateful that it came to us because it's very cool what you guys have been up to with this project down in Brazil. Um, give us a little bit of the backstory. Tell us what it is first, and we'll dive in from there. Okay, good. So, um, first of all, thanks, Fabio once more <laughs> uh, but anyway I think we are pretty good at uh, technology stuff uh, by we I mean people who started this project but some of us were not so familiar with politics in general so at a certain point uh, Edu, one of the founders 
decided to get more involved in politics and he might have asked a, a question that goes something like, how can I use the knowledge I have in technology? He's a great uh, data scientist. He's a great developer. So how can I use this knowledge to kind of go to a, see that it's unknown for me, like politics? And as we live in an age that we have a lot of open data about our government, um, it was kind of one possible answer to use data science to understand what this data was telling us about our government. So we can know who should we vote for, or at least who shouldn't we vote for. So I think this is the, the very, very beginning of the idea of Serenata Jamor. So if you, if you were going to summarize where we're at today or what it does currently, just at a big picture, we'll dive into the details, but okay. what is it? What does it do? Well, so we started to take data from the, uh, I think it would be the lower house in the USA, but here is the Chamber of Deputies. And those guys do a lot of expenses while they are working on their job, while, while they are uh, representing us in the government. So we start to look to this, uh, to, to data about those expenses and try to find uh, bizarre things, suspicious things in those data sets, because this would be kind of corruption or at least a kind of immoral or regular use of public money. So this is basically what we started with and as we have just found in for a short stint. Basically, that's the point today. We are still looking for federal data, um, not looking for, like looking into, does that make sense? Anyway, mm -hmm. uh, into this data set and trying to understand what people are doing with our money. People are representatives, our money, like the money we pay for government and basically taxes and, and et cetera. Yeah, so the tagline on the website is Artificial Intelligence for Social Control of Public Administration. And that is the project focuses around the Brazilian government and these officials that you're speaking of, these Congress people, and um, uncovering via artificial intelligence and the system that you built, I think you said the word odd, uh, potential corruption in their spending. Is that fair? Yes, yes. Okay. Completely fair. I, I think if I might jump into an example, it may be easier to grasp. Yep. Uh, a, very, a very simple example for um, Congress people, they can pay uh, with public money for their meals, for example, but only their meals, not like some uh, the meal of someone uh, who works for for them or someone who's meeting for whatever reason it is. And we can use data science and uh, machine learning to take all those uh, receipts from restaurants and spot which one is really an outlier. So probably there's something. Uh, odd with this outlier and maybe the guy is paying the lunch for someone else when he or she shouldn't do it. So that's the kind of thing we're looking at. Right. So you gave us the, the initial idea and now we know what it is, what it does. Let's hear the, the backstory on bringing this software to, to exist. You said the idea happened 
Um, I'll lay out there that two months of development was crowdfunded. Almost 1,300 people yeah. uh, participated in that crowdfunding event. Tell us that story of saying when the founder had the idea for this project and how it came to be. So I think like the founder is, uh, uh, he's called Idu. And he had the idea, I think he had this uh, at certain point, that question in his mind, how can I use the knowledge I have to uh, go deeper in politics? And he approached uh, some friends. I was one of them. And we looked at his idea and said, wow, that's amazing. Let's do something about it. And we were like uh, the three of us very familiar familiar with crowdfunding for different reasons. And our idea was, okay, let's put up a project uh, on a crowdfunding platform so we can raise money to do a kind of MVP and kind of show people that this is possible. We can actually use technology. We can use um, machine learning to make sense of uh, there's like tons of data that is public by law in Brazil and most in most of countries, uh, whatever they are. And th this was a kind of crazy thing to do because there's no, um, we couldn't expect much from crowdfunding in terms of money. Like uh, it's it wasn't feasible to expect money to work for a full year in the project. So we kind of estimated that we could raise money for two months. And two months is a very short, period of time for a data science project. So we decided like, that we should start with a very simple idea, put it, uh, like get our hands dirty on it and just show people that it's really, really possible. So we gather a team, I think it were, we were six or seven in the beginning and we put the project online, the project, I mean the, the, the crowdfunding campaign online and it was roughly one year ago. I think it was September 2016. So for two months, we were open to donations. And uh, at the end, we got money to actually work three months in the project, which was uh, better than we expected. And so what we did is uh, translate, let's say, translate law into code to try to spot in the, those data sets. Uh, Eight or no, I think eight. I'm overestimated. I think it was in the beginning five or six hypotheses of how people could be using the public money in uh, illegal ways or not so moral <laughs> ways of the, uh, of using it. So uh, that's what we actually did. How it got started, which was pretty important. Uh, pretty much important in the process was that we got a lot of support from the media in Brazil. So in a certain week, we mm. we got like a cover of the biggest newspaper of the country and at three minutes on the biggest TV news on the country. So I think this gave us a lot of supporters in terms of not, not only code, but people who were very interested in what we were doing. Something you said that was pretty interesting there was translated law into code, if I heard you correctly. Is that what you said? Yes, yes. Jeez, what, what kind of process was that? Uh, it, it was uh, literally going through law text. So we have a, um, a document. I, I really don't know how to 
like uh, say what this document is in English. It's not a law, but it's a kind of agreement from the lower house, uh, from the Chamber of Deputies, saying how much is this money we are talking about and how uh, representatives can use it. Okay. So, so like guidelines on how public officials can use public funds to go about using their jobs, doing their jobs day to day. Yes, yes. And the, th those guidelines, for some reason, they have like the same wage as the law if you actually like decide to sue someone, for example, uh, because there's no law above it. Uh, it, it, could, it could be, but there's no law. So this is kind of the, the main piece a Jude would look at if someone sued the congressperson and said, hey, you're not using this money uh, as we expect you to do. So uh, first of all, we have to understand law. That, that's how it really begins. And I think the second step is a, a bit curious because we should, once we, we understand this piece of law, uh, this agreement, these guidelines, we should think, okay, so if I was to try to, how can I say, like do a, a, a little work around to use this money in, in another way, how would I do it? And then we could think about, okay, let's say someone actually did this thing we just uh, suggested in a kind of brainstorm. How could data tell us that someone did that? And then we start to really um, organize the law into code. So we have the law, we have a way to bypass it, and we have a way to analyze data that would say that people use it that exactly bypass we've thought about it and then it's kind of easier to write code on that so let's lay out a couple a few of the findings i think some of the details here are important because it's specific to the setup that you have there in brazil with regards to you know, the money going to the congress people how much they're willing how much they're able to spend and the fact that they do report these reimbursements or receipts mm -hmm. or however it goes in that you can use for that data. So first let's, you know, the cool thing is that, that the robot, uh, which you guys gave it a name, right? Rosie, is that the right name? Uh, yes, Rosie. It's okay. named after the, the, um, the character from the Jetsons. Yes. The maid, there you go. the maid, I think. <laughs> yeah. Was the maid right? from Jetson. Right. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, so Rosie has some findings, and they're on the, the website, which is linked up in the show notes for those interested. But just a few to summarize. So 219 Congress people max out their monthly spending. That's one of the findings. One Congress person that uh, usually gets 30 gas tanks filled each month on average, uh, which seems to be uh, outside the norm. Uh, two Congress people have claimed 13 meals paid in the same day. And as you said, they're able to pay their own meals, but not other people's. So that would be a strange one. These are the kinds of things that Rosie uh, is uncovering. And I think it's important to understand that we, this works because the Congress people are reporting this. Tell us yeah. the process of how they actually send in their reimbursements and what that all looks okay. like. Yeah. Uh, we have, uh, Brazil is a big country and, and we have a lot of representatives basically because we have a lot of, uh, different states with, uh, different like sizes. So, uh, 
Uh, to sum up, we have a little bit more than 500 representatives. It's 513, if I'm not wrong. So uh, they are reimbursed for those kind of expenses, uh, expenses with meals, with security, with if they want to subscribe for some content, whether it is like digital or printed, doesn't matter. Um, consultancies, which kind of makes sense. They have to vote for a law and it's not their field of expertise, so they can hire a, a consultant or a consultancy to help them. Um, transportation, because in theory, in democracy, they should be close to people who voted for him, so he can, they can be reimbursed for, for traveling from the capital, which is in the middle of a massive country, to whatever uh, part of the country elected him or her. Uh, different kind of expenses. So it works uh, in a reimbursement process. They pay from their pockets and they save the receipt and they submit it to the house, to the Chamber of Deputies, saying, hey, I, like, I, I just uh, spent, I don't know, 10 bucks with this and show the receipt and they are reimbursed. The problem is actually that uh, we've been to the Chamber of Deputies and there are actually four people working in this process. So they are in the office. They are not representatives. They are, uh, how do you call it, public servants? Yeah. Um, yeah I'm not sure, but... They're, yes, they've they got an yeah. office. They, it's their job to kind of hang out there and do their thing. Yes, they are part of the, the, the government, but they are not the politicians themselves. They are right. not... They're the state, not the government. Public servants, like yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so there are uh, uh, four people to actually receive and analyze and decide whether to reimburse and not all the receipts from 413 representatives. Uh, they said uh, we, they actually received more than 1,500, like 1,500 claims for reimbursement every day. And it, it's a massive job. It's basically impossible to handle this job without the help of technology. Um, and actually, they um, they are handling the, this without the help of, help of technology. And probably that's why we have a lot of work for Rosie to do, because uh, they are handling it. But uh, we don't trust it's possible to do a good job. If I were in their shoes, probably I would miss a lot of things. And, and I guess that's what's happening. It's kind so, of like having checks and balances, right? You have a human doing a job, but at the same time, that person could uh, do errors. And that, that's going to happen as part of doing any job, right? But Rosie is there to cover the checks and balances to make sure that what goes through the system, these human beings doing this awesome job, mm -hmm. this hard job, uh, is following the law. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Once uh, uh, in a presentation about the project, uh, I just made up a really, really simple example. I, I was uh, saying, okay, so imagine you are one of these uh, guys over there and there's a, a pile of receipts on your table and you have to just look through them and just say, is this a, a kind of very, very expensive meal, like something uh, that is not right. And I just said to the public, like, hey, imagine you have like a pile as tall as the um, Lord of the Rings. Each page is a different recipe. Uh, the book, of course, not the DVDs. Anyway. So, <laughs> yeah. 
So Long yeah, movies too. for those. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, one receipt have, per second of the movies. There you go. <laughs> there you go. And I just run like a quick uh, live code and say, okay, but imagine have all this uh, in a data set and we can use for the project, we use Python and pandas. So I just in, I'm just guessing by, uh, but like in 10 lines of code, I could, uh, from a sample of one uh, 1500 receipts, that it's basically what the department gets every day. I say, okay, from this, we have like just 13 that are from meals or that are uh, kind of outliers. So uh, in one day you can look to 13 receipts, but you can't uh, look to 1500 receipts. So that's the idea. Mm. And with technology, it's easy. It's like 10 lines of code, a lines of code, and you can like automatically get proof probably most of them and just pay attention to the ones that probably are, um, uh, that probably deserve this extra attention. That's the idea, I guess. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is, this is classic human empowerment, right? So the combination of a computer and a human in this case, you have the computer to basically flag outliers or, or yes. oddities and yeah. then the human to then you're reducing the human's load from 1500 to maybe a dozen uh, like you said the the previous number was not even you couldn't even do that and then a dozen sounds like it's you know you <laughs> can do that in an hour um and so in the actual the what's hard for computers and what they're getting better at it but um they're still not there yet is actually detecting whether or not this is corruption right is this a false positive is there an explanation? Uh, and so yeah. Rosie doesn't do any actual reporting, right? Uh, Rosie just gives the information back to person. Yeah. It would make sense to have a system though, to have humans process the data, you know, do data entry basically, mm -hmm. you know, obviously do human flagging as well as part of the process, but because the load is so massive to reduce the thought process during data processing, or data entry, so to speak, and and do that after the fact. I mean, that's what that would make sense to me, anyways, right? Like this seems like the way it should be. Yes, yeah. I, I mean, like uh, by <laughs> you after guys agree, the fact, of course. Uh, yeah, after the fact, uh, the fact is what is the the reimbursement itself. What do you mean? Um, after the data entry. Yeah, right. So they're okay, gonna. Okay. Yeah. They're putting the data into, I'm assuming, process it and say, okay, this person should get reimbursed this amount of money. They're they're just processing receipts essentially and mm -hmm. applying it like here's a receipt, you know, for Ed. And Ed got three receipts today. Boom. It's in the system. They mm -hmm. didn't discern whether or not those three receipts was illegal or, or seemed illegal by any means. They didn't look mm -hmm. at the law. They just simply processed the information and put it into the system and allowed something like Rosie to, to do its mm -hmm. job. Yeah. Uh, actually, they're... <laughs> uh, well, like, politicians, they're pretty clever, I must say that. Uh -huh. Because yeah, <laughs> there's another layer to add to the discussion that is, uh, officially, the Chamber of Deputies, like the, the administrations, the public servants we were talking about, they are only there, that's what's written in this piece of paper that acts like the law. They are only there to say if the receipt used for the claim is a valid one. Let's say if the federal revenue ever gets a receipt, 
would the federal revenue say, yes, this is actually uh, legal for revenue, whatever. Uh, which is bizarre because uh, the other side of this coin is that only the politician is like the representative is able by law to decide if the expense is claimable. Probably this word doesn't even exist, but like if he or she can claim the reimbursement for this expense. So uh, if uh, one of the representatives goes to a restaurant that we know that for sure uh, one cannot pay more than $100 for a, a, a meal and he goes there and say, okay, this is my receipt. I spent $500. Actually, by law, he's the only person allowed to judge if this is reimbursable or not. <laughs> uh, oh, man. Which is even bizarre, but I, I don't think we should get as far as this. But anyway. You can uh, only catch yourself. Yes, yes. It's, they're pretty clever. Uh, but like in spite of that, uh, I think there's a lot of morality that we can put to work uh, on our favor. And by our, I don't mean like the project. I mean like actually the population of Brazil. Um, yeah. Like a classic example is that the, the law doesn't say anything about alcoholic drinks. So he could go to, I know, they know a liquor store or something. Um, but actually, there's the I forgot the word. I think it's uh, jurisprudence. Do you, do you, is this familiar? Say it uh, again. Jurisprudence or something. Yeah. When a lot of Jews uh, seems to take the same directions in similar cases, it's not the law, but it's how the judgments uh, uh, probably mm-hmm. uh, all, all of them will push this direction. Uh, I think what he's saying is when when a lot of judges agree on a certain direction, I'm not sure what that that term is called, but if you've got 11 of 12 judges agree on a direction, what is that? uh, Yes, that's the point. So I don't know the word, sorry. But yeah, so uh, about alcoholic drinks, we don't have anything written that it's forbidden, but we have a kind of this shared understanding that this is not the purpose uh, The purpose for this money. So uh, you can actually report someone mm. uh, in this context, like he's using public money for uh, alcoholic drinks. And even if it's not the law, probably the Jude will. will, will. So there's a lot of nuance, basically, into this process. Yes. I mean, <laughs> so the, the question back was, was basically, uh, you know, how do you take law and turn it into code? And so... It's very nuanced. A lot of creative liberty could even be taken considering like this one in particular where while alcohol may not be it's mm-hmm. discouraged, it's not lawfully un- you know enforced to not do it. It's just discouraged. <laughs> yeah. Coming up, we ask Ed how he and his team got involved in this project and what their position is, whether they're civilians, government officials, or employees, or none of the above. And when they got started with this project, they started to report these discrepancies back to the government. And as you may assume, they got a really low rate of response, so they gave Rosie, this robot, a Twitter handle, and started making these discrepancies public data, which started to obviously raise awareness, but also ruffle the feathers of those in power. To find out what happens next, stay tuned. 
This episode is brought to you by Linode, our cloud server of choice. Everything we do here at Changelog is hosted on Linode servers. Pick a plan, pick a distro, and pick a location. And in seconds, deploy your virtual server. Drool-worthy hardware, SSD cloud storage, 40 gigabit network, Intel E5 processors, simple, easy control panel, nine data centers, three regions, anywhere in the world they've got you covered. Head to linode.com slash changelog and get $20 in hosting credit. And by Circle CI. Circle CI is how leading engineering teams deliver value faster by automating the software development process using continuous integration and continuous delivery. You are free to focus on what matters most, which is building value for your customers. Circle CI is everything great teams need support for any language that builds on Linux, configurable resources, advanced caching options, custom environments, SSH access, security through full level virtual machine isolation, interactive visual dashboard, first class Docker support, and more. Get started with their free plan, which gives you unlimited projects and 1500 bills per month. Plenty to get started with. Head to circleci.com slash changelogpodcast. What about rewinding a bit when you said to do this in the first place, the founder of this project, they wanted to get more into politics. Mm-hmm. And you say that you are working with the the, the individuals processing their, these receipts. How did you all go about getting uh, one? The, the idea is great, too. But how did you get to actually be embedded into the government? It seems like what is your is your position? Civilians is your position? government officials this project mm-hmm. governmentally sanctioned how did that for that sell happen how did you get there okay <laughs> yeah, we are not related to the government i think when we started the project a lot of the project a lot so this of, is happening outside the government yes totally okay. outside we are mostly in a kind of uh hacker culture i guess um there's a lot of nuance over there but by hacker culture, I just mean the hands-on mode, really trying to not just wave banners, but like, let's do some stuff. Like, what can, can we do with whatever we know? Is this and, awareness then? So you're processing this data with Rosie and you're raising awareness back to the uh, government saying, hey, here's corruption happening consistently. Yeah, the, yes, I, I think that that summarized pretty well. One very interesting point in, on that is that when we started to find something odd, we started to report, and it's pretty pretty funny. Like the very first case we spot was a guy drinking a Samuel Adams beer in Garden Ramsey's restaurant in Las Vegas, a Brazilian representative, uh, mm. and say, "Hey, we are paying beer for someone in uh, Vegas. That's not uh, like." That's unexpected. Uh, so we started to report it, and actually, we got a, a really low rate of response because uh, actually they don't have to reply at all. So the Chamber of Deputies, if uh, any any one from the population asks them something, hey, there's this data, this receipt here, it's kind of uh, odd. Can you clarify that for me? They it's compulsory for them to give us uh, a response. 
but it's not compulsory for the congressperson to report back to the chamber of deputies, like to this administration part of the chamber. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we start to have a really low rate of responses. We, we like we did a, a kind of marathon of reports in one week, and they, we uh, reported almost a thousand cases, and we just have had I think ten percent of response, which is pretty low. Uh, mm. So uh, from that point, we started to turn our attention not to officially reporting cases. But bringing them to the public, um, kind of a public arena, public place. So basically, mm-hmm. we gave Rosie a Twitter account. <laughs> so, I was going to say, it seems no. like the best way to call it out is just to make it public instead of saying, hey, can yes. you tell me more about this? Just more like, hey, this is happening. Yes. And, and uh, until that point, we we're really uh, afraid of um, publicizing some name of a representative's claiming that there was a suspicion in his uh, reimbursement because uh, it was pointing fingers and, and like that wasn't the idea. We'd not, we, we shouldn't just point fingers. Right. But the end of the story is that it didn't work as we expected. And when Rosie started to tweet case, so we are careful with the language. So she basically asks for help. Uh, a kind of translation of the tweets because she's a machine, so uh, she's pretty much repetitive in whatever she tweets. But is hey, people, I found something suspicious here. Can you help me look into it and and like give a say? Is it really uh, something odd, or I just mess it up? Because like sometimes it happens. There's false positives, and this was pretty good because a lot of different. People started to follow Rosie, and when she tweets, they start to ask the representative, like, hey, guy, uh, what is this thing Rosie's saying about us? So it's, I, I don't know, maybe one, two, three, maybe ten people asking the congressperson what the hell is going on with this reimbursement. <laughs> and this is pretty, uh, this was effective, I think. Uh, so that's how, how we kept doing, like. Uh, Rosie is, is still tweeting things. People ported the code, so she. What's also, the Twitter for Rosie? Uh, Rosie da Serenata, which is uh, Serenata uh, Rosie from Serenata, translating it. I can add the the link, so I can share the link. So you you put on the po- on the podcast if you want. Absolutely, I think it's very interesting that the the limiting factor in Rosie's effectiveness is the actual structure of the government itself, meaning that you'd have to reorganize the way it even works in order for the corruption reporting to have legal ramifications for these people. Mm-hmm. But you can't stop the spread of the information once it's been found. And so while you had only 10% of respondents with these claims that were being submitted, now you can just say, well, if that's, we can't restructure the government, we can at least bring to light the corruption into the public forum. And then the individual people can hold their politicians to the fire. That's really cool. Yeah. And, and that's the idea. Like, uh, that wasn't our first option, but that's, uh, the only way we found, so we kept with that. But it's interesting that your perspective first was to just, you know, silently whistleblow back to the government potential corruption or just, you know, potentially just an error, you know, or an oversight, not so much mm-hmm. 
you know, saying these people are wrong or right. they're, you know, they're breaking the law. Maybe it's by accident. Who knows? To to get essentially no response or lack of response or slow response in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. And and now turn it over to the public and say, here's a public data set of like erroneous receipts happening in our government. And here's who's to blame. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting because um, we were criticized because this is public shaming and you shouldn't do that. Like you're just pointing fingers and maybe like p- p- people will bully some Congress person because of no reason. But w- one, one interesting story is that in the very beginning, our idea was to put Rosie to work and she would give us back suspicions. And then we have a kind of blind review of, of suspicions. And then uh, we had like kind of Google form to people interested in helping us uh, investigating the suspicion. So we would like sort cases and do this blind review. And only after, you know, let's say, three people flag it as, okay, this is not a false positive, then we'd, we would report it. And that was a disaster because basically people haven't uh, the knowledge of the law we had. So people wouldn't say like, okay, he was in Vegas and it was just a beer, like a small bottle. So it's not illegal or it's not immoral. So that's okay. When actually uh, by the law, if you, it's not written, but we have this shared understanding that it wasn't supposed to be that way. So uh, we shut down this blind reveal thing in favor of, um, which was kind of crazy because we were putting a lot of pressure on our shoulders, a lot of work on our desk, like to investigate all suspicions before reporting. And then we are kind of afraid of just tweeting stuff and names and, and, but it was, I think really a really good experience in spite of the blind reveal thing. Uh, and part of that is that because a lot of our followers or Rosie followers, they ask us stuff. So uh, can the congressperson do this or that? Uh, which part of the law says says this or that? Or how can I investigate that? This was really, really hmm. cool. Like people were not just public shaming. Of course, there were some doing it, but it's not the kind of uh, behavior we try to foster we, we care a lot of communication like words and how we put cases and in our facebook account we really try to share our techniques of investigation how we we go from a receipt to a decision if there's a false positive mm-hmm. or it's really suspicious and this was pretty cool like people interest in law from rose's suspicions like the i like that you're not just raising the awareness but you're also somewhat raising the education of the public's knowledge of what the law is and isn't. It's like a discussion, a forum around such things that many people would never engage or learn about, not given a a medium like this. (laughs) Pretty cool. So the question is, you got Rosie de Serenada. How scalable is Rosie? You have have this Twitter account, and Mm -hmm. it's for... Brazil and it's in Portuguese. And the question that I always seem to ask our guests is how scalable are these things? Like the idea of course is free and anybody Mm -hmm. in their government or their locality can go out and build their own system. But um, how scalable do you see this in light of taking the rules that are in Brazil that are specific to Brazilian law 
mm-hmm. importing the system or maybe even just the idea of the system to different localities because citizens of uh, citizens of many countries are probably learn of something like this and think, oh, I would love to have something like this where I live. Okay. <laughs> well, I have a lot to do in this, uh, a lot to talk about in questions like that. First of all, and, and, and I think the most basic step in this direction is that everything we do in terms of code, in terms of technology, is in English. Uh, again, we've been criticized because, oh, we are letting a lot of Brazilians out. Maybe they don't speak English or they don't feel comfortable in like discussing uh, issues on GitHub in English. But that's uh, a decision we took and we embrace it. So all the code itself is in English and all the comments or the discussions in, in, in this kind of technological forum that is GitHub. Because that's the idea, like people should use it to their own realities. So this is the first thing. The second thing is that uh, to this point, we are kind of specialized in analyzing reimbursements. So we, we, if you have other kinds of uh, public expenses, probably our classifiers won't fit perfectly, like you have to really write your own classifiers. But on the other hand, we try to design the software uh, in a way that is pretty much pluggable. So you can have, uh, our architecture just requires basically an adapter, which says where Rosie can find data and a set of classifiers for this data. And all the, the pipeline would work the same. doesn't matter if you're pulling data from Brazilian government or US government or my city or whatever. So we try to be useful for other, um, not other countries only, uh, of course, other countries for sure. But even inside Brazil, it's different. If uh, Like if we are talking about a city hall or the federal government, it's completely different uh, data sets and, and anyway. So, but, but we try to be this uh, pipeline where we can plug adapters for data and classifiers. So you can't skip knowing the laws of your country, your city, your state, and translating it into code. Maybe if you find some similarities uh, comparing your law to Brazilian law, we use it, it will be way easier. It's completely, if it's completely different, probably have more work to do, but the idea is for us to grow the project to the point that we have a lot of references and, and that would make it easier for people to use. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now in Brazil, I've, n- I've known about different cities or different initiatives trying to adapt our code to municipalities, just city halls, basically. And we try to support as much as we can. And also, I think, there's this big thing of the idea of the project. So the day before yesterday, I was told some guys were looking into another kind of expense by the government. Um, again, I don't know the, the word in English, but when the government wants to hire a service or to buy something, he can't just, like the government can't just walk into the supermarket, okay, I need this and buy it. It has to publicly advertise that he's looking for the service so every company can bid 
I think they yeah. call that a call for proposals. Procurement. Yeah, procurement. Okay, okay, yeah. that's no problem. They essentially so, put out a call that, hey, we're going to project coming up. We need to have proposals RFP. from yeah, an RFP. A lot of people yes. have to bid on it, and it's a process. Yeah. Okay, yeah, like uh, I'm building a bridge, so uh, different engineers can bid. Okay, I can build this bridge for this amount, and the government is kind of uh, obliged right. to pick the, the, the cheapest one. So those, those guys, like I've known about them like two days ago, they did this for the city of Sao Paulo. It's the, the biggest Brazilian city for this RFP. So they are using NLP to uh, cluster these calls by similarity. So when they have very similar calls with very different prices, there's something wrong. So probably there's someone trying to take advantage of one or another call. Mm. So they actually, as far as I know, I've gone through their GitHub. As far as I know, they haven't used not a single line of code we wrote. Uh, they, they could, it's all open sourced. But I think the idea uh, is spread and I, this is amazing. This is really good. So we, we, you don't have to use Rosie or whatever uh, code we write, but just using technology to helping you to make sense of public data, th that's amazing. That's what we really expect to foster with this project. In this final segment of the show, we talk about the importance of open data, but more importantly, making it accessible. This involves data scientists joining the effort to help make this not just public data, but usable public data. We also call out to all of our listeners in Brazil to reach out and get involved in this project. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by TopTal. TopTal is the best place to work as a freelancer or hire the top 3% of freelance talent out there for developers, designers, and finance experts. In this segment, I talk with Josh Chapman, a freelance finance consultant at TopTal, about the work he does and how TopTal helps him legitimize being a freelancer. Take a listen. Yeah, in my arena within TopTal, I specialize in everything from market research to business plan creation to pitch decks to uh, financial modeling, valuation. And then that leads very naturally into fundraising strategy, capital raising strategy, investor outreach, closing a deal, deal negotiation, how to value the company, how to negotiate that. And all those skill sets that I have continued to hone over on the TopTal side are ones that I actually deploy every single day in my own company. Freelancing can sometimes be seen as not legitimate or subpar work. Now, I would argue that when you work with a company like TopTal, they put so much vetting into not only the companies that you work with, but also the talent that you work with, which I'm on the talent side, that it adds a level of legitimacy that isn't seen across other platforms. And that for me, as the talent side, is incredibly fruitful and awesome to be a part of, right? I enjoy the clients. I enjoy the other talent that I get to talk to. I enjoy the TopTal team. And that creates an overall positive experience, not only for, for TopTal, but for me as the talent and for the client as the company on the other side. And that is really not seen or is the experience across other platforms in the freelance market. 
So if you're looking to freelance or you're looking to gain access to a network of top industry experts in development design or finance, head to TopTal.com, that's T-O-P-T-A-L.com, and tell them Adam from the Changelog sent you. For those wanting a more personal introduction, email me, Adam at Changelog.com. one of the things that gets me personally so excited about open data, public data from governments is that it allows those people out there that have the ability to look at the data and examine it and potentially cross-examine how, you know, how government spending is being done and, and put the power back into the people's hand versus just assuming that there is no corruption or there is no illegalities taking place. It's, you know, that's something someone out there is uh, is looking into this in ways that aren't just trusted individuals yes yes and i mean sometimes like uh when we started the project la- later they they changed the api but the the chamber of deputies they used to uh follow this uh, open data law so they they were kind of uh, it was compulsory for them to publish publicize this data but they actually did it in a really massive XML file. It was like five gigabytes. So, okay, it's open data. It's out there. You can like click and download and there you have all the data from this department, from this part of the government. But actually, how accessible is a five gigabytes XML? It, it's basically like, a, I don't think I can open it in my computer. It doesn't have enough uh, memory to, to handle a a file this big and also is xml like the proper file format to make that accessible i think just tech people know that xml exists like if i tell my mom uh, uh probably she has no clue about how to open xml file so i think it's really good to have open data but we should be very critical in in pondering how accessible is it for people and one step further yeah and and one step further like uh how can people actually make sense because Mm -hmm. if i open uh uh in like my uh excel some spreadsheet software uh 1.6 million lines file how can i actually understand what these lines are, are telling me so I think it's a really good thing to bring uh, data science to help you in, in make sense of this data. How many times have we said that, Jerry, where it's nice to be open source, but wouldn't it be nice if it was, all, if it was also accessible? Yeah. You know, open source is one thing, but then the accessibility of the project or the data in, the, in this case, mm-hmm. we said at least a dozen times in the show, I'm sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. This is one of the, I mean, a lot of the, there's a lot of work to be done in taking public data that's public the way that Ed has described because it has to be, but they have no, you know, there's no investment into it at all. Uh, they take basically throw it over the wall, so to speak, and take that into usable public data. And yeah. there's lots of foundations doing that kind of work, um, civic hackers and stuff like that, because, mm-hmm. you know, you say an XML file is bad. 
Um, well, for, in terms of programmatic access, it's actually kind of nice. And like you said, yeah. it's just humongous and it's difficult to, you know, parse reliably. Um, but you know, what's worse is like PDFs or like scanned images. Oh, the, mm-hmm. There's, there's terrible forms of public data and, um, we can't get to the interesting work until we can get, you know, access to what is rightfully ours in whatever you know locale you happen to be in. So the citizens. Mm-hmm. It's a big problem. Totally. We started to write our own kind of dashboard to browse data. So uh, if uh, going through analysis, we we want to look to more details on a specific reimbursement, we need a kind of dashboard. So just put the reimbursement Mm -hmm. number and you have all the information, Uh, which reminds me that uh, we don't look only to the data set provided by the Chamber of Deputies, but we start to add layers of information. So, uh, okay, the reimbursement was at that company, so go to the federal revenue to to grab more data about the company. Then we have the address of the company, so you can ask Google to uh, uh, a picture like Google Street View, so where this company is. So uh, there's a lot of layers of data we add to the original data set. And actually this uh, dashboard started as a kind of internal tool for us to do whatever we were doing. And now there's a big effort in the in the team, in the core of, uh, of contributors to make this dashboard more accessible. Because as an internal tool, it was really, really terrible in terms of UX. You have to know the reimbursement number and some other code like numeric ID to get to the data and now we are trying to, okay, you can like uh, search by name and you can filter just your state and let's say reimbursement from this or that category, like meals from my state in 2015. And I think this is pretty interesting. Like we've seen journalists doing amazing jobs because we offer this uh, tool for them to browse data, to browse government data. And that's something the government uh, should have done, I guess. Uh, I think maybe they don't have enough people to do it. Maybe that's not their focus. But this kind of dashboards that is not technical, it doesn't require Python or Pandas or whatever for the user. There's something really important. It doesn't matter if it's a kind of civic activism stuff or if it's provided by the government itself. This is the kind of thing that really mm-hmm. should exist out there. Yeah, maybe something that's sitting on everybody's uh, thoughts, lips, whatever, as they're listening to the show is like this name. Serenata mm. de Amor. Mm. Like, where, where, okay. Serenade of Love, if you, if you, you know, translate it into English, yeah. Serenade of Love. What, what is it? What is it? Why this name? What, where did this come yeah. from? Okay. Like a literary translation, translation wouldn't make sense because it'd be Love Serenade, I guess. Uh, serenade is like when people like, sing a song for someone who he or she is in love with, right? Right. So, mm-hmm. but actually this is the name of a, a very famous Brazilian chocolate, which okay. is kind of even more bizarre, I guess. But the point is... No, a lot of our uh, listeners are really into chocolate. Yeah, okay, good thing. <laughs> I know this <laughs> but, <laughs> I know this by our downloads. I, certain cities are really into chocolate. They make downloads in those cities. Just kidding. Yeah. I'm assuming our listeners like chocolate. I like chocolate. That's a pretty safe assumption. I I mean, most people like chocolate. Who doesn't like chocolate? I mean, come on. Yeah. 
but like the real reason uh why we pick it up like a chocolate uh name is uh in in mid 90s there was a, a swedish politician she was probably uh she, she probably was going to be the next prime minister of sweden and for some reason that i don't remember why they start to investigate her and they realized that she was using public money to buy stuff she wasn't supposed to buy and one of those things was a, a single bar or maybe two bars of Toblerone. the, the to, yes, Toblerone, yeah. yes. Those Chocolate. are good. So it, it became known as the Toblerone Affair. <laughs> and uh, yeah, nice. I think, yeah, you can Google for it. I, I, I don't know if you we have like a Wikipedia page for Toblerone Affair, but if you go to this uh, politician uh, page on Wikipedia, it's there, Toblerone it Affair. It is there. Yeah, I'm on a silence. Well, yeah, yep. I, we're going to leave this up in the show notes so everybody can follow along. This is... <laughs> hilarious that it's well i guess not hilarious in hindsight but the fact that it's connected to chocolate you know yeah so i, I think it has a lot to do with the kind of uh, irregular or illegal usage of public money we expect to find using data science because when there's a big corruption scandal of millions billions maybe i don't know trillions of whatever currency you're using Probably someone already uh, spot that and someone is working on it. But when we use big data, probably we are seeing a lot of small cases, a lot of small cases, a massive amount of small cases that hardly ever would be spotted by a human being. That's That was our hypothesis. And I think that's, uh, well, uh, has a lot to do with uh, the Toblerone affair. It was a level of corruption in terms of monetary value, very low. Um, So this this is the main reason. Mm. In Brazil, there's a second reason that in Brazil, when our FBI, let's say our federal uh, bureau of investigation is uh, investigating something, of course, they can't say... I'm investigating this case with a very meaningful name. So they just give random names. I don't know how it works elsewhere. So uh, calling our project Serenatio Amor was a kind of joke with those random names our FBI uses. So uh, it's usually Operation something and something that makes no sense, Uh. like uh, Operation Sent Castle, uh, Operation Car Wash. And then we have Operation Serenata. <laughs> car wash. <laughs> yeah, car wash actually is like the, the, the biggest uh, investigation on corruption in Brazil. It's going on. And uh, anyway, and there's a third reason that it's basically our love story and aid for our country, like the kind of uh, gesture we can do as a citizen to help our country. So this is the cheesy one, but I love it. Ah. Great name. Lots of lots of meaning inside that name. That's that's excellent. <laughs> and how can we as the hacker community uh, get involved, help you out, further your cause? We have lots of listeners in Brazil. We have listeners around the globe. Um, how can we help out and get involved? Well, we would be really, really proud if you like get inspired by some of our ideas and try to do something local. We think we don't have to help us out in the sense of making this project better in Brazil for the like the levels of administration we are working at like feel free to take the idea forward this is this would be amazing if you uh, 
are just like wanting to get deep in the code and stuff, we have a lot of issues from uh, deployment to UX to DevOps to data science, like a lot of analysis we would like to do and we just can't, we just uh, haven't had time to do it. And this is basically because we started with this big crowdfunding campaign and since then we basically had no other big fundraising except uh, a recurring crowdfunding campaign we started uh, when we ran out of money. So we are really glad because people are supporting us, but unfortunately the amount of money we raise is not enough to put like a couple of people, two, three, four people working full time on the project. So right now we just have two or three part-time developers in the project. Uh, so if you want to write code, there's a lot of things to write from data science to development to UX to uh, DevOps or whatever. And like there's a lot of communication uh, stuff going on. So there's someone looking after our social media. There's uh, people from law school helping us to dig into laws and, and, and think about new ways to get better results out of the report, or maybe you think about new hypotheses that could be translated into classifiers. So actually there's a lot of things to do if you wanna help us just, I think get started reading something about us. There's our website, probably the link will go in the podcast post. And, or maybe in our GitHub if you're a more techie savvy person, feel free to drop a line on GitHub saying hi. Very good. Well, Ed, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for stopping by and telling us all about it. Thanks for this opportunity. It's uh, really, really good to talk about this project because um, not exactly the code we write, but the ideas underneath this code is really important for us. And it's really, really a pleasure. It's an honor to be here uh, sharing these ideas with you guys. So thanks a lot for this opportunity. Absolutely. Thank you for tuning into the show this week. If you enjoyed the show, you know what to do. Share it with friends. Read us on Apple Podcasts. Tell everybody you know, please. Thanks to our sponsors, Bugsnag, Linode, CircleCI, and also TopTile. Big thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. We host everything we do on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash changelog. Check them out. Support this show. This show is hosted by myself, Adam Stachowiak, and Jared Santo. Editing is done by Jonathan Youngblood. And the awesome music you hear is produced by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. You can find more shows just like this at changelaw.com or where you subscribe to podcasts. Thanks for listening.